You're listening to a podcast from Riverview Church in Bowness, recorded during one of our Sunday gatherings. For more information about Riverview Church, or service times, or contact details, go to riverviewchurch.uk or find us on Facebook at Riverview Bowness. At the beginning of the ninth chapter of Mark's Gospel account, Jesus tells the disciples that some of them wouldn't experience death before they see that the kingdom of God has come or is present with power. And six days later, Jesus takes a couple of them up a high mountain where he is totally and gloriously transformed right in front of their eyes. His physical appearance changed, even his clothes become radiant, and then two dead guys, Moses and Elijah appear and start having a conversation with him in front of the disciples. And so they are afraid and they're confused, right, as to how to handle the situation. But one thing is clear. The kingdom of God has come. We're seeing it right now. What a powerful moment this is. It's amazing. Let's build tents and let's stay here. But the moment passes and they return to normality and are confronted by a situation that they seem frustratingly powerless to deal with. Yet again here in the valley of the ordinary, the disciples bear witness to the extraordinary fact that the kingdom of God is present with power. What have you been hoping for and asking for for years that may seem unlikely or unrealistic or implausible or even impossible, that we may have exhausted all of our expectations or tired ourselves out in the asking? You know, when the the positive expectancy-filled why not turns into a negative and pain-filled why not And what we're facing right here and now and we'll have to deal with in the coming months and years in our community, in our families and in our own lives, it may seem daunting. We we may feel ill-equipped, lacking the skill, the motivation, the encouragement or the wisdom, the knowledge and the power to be able to deal with it. Perhaps feeling frustratingly powerless, like claiming a gospel that is the power of God unto salvation and yet secretly struggling with the realities of what we seem to see and experience around us. Why couldn't we deal with this, the disciples asked? Only by prayer is Jesus's response or only by prayer and fasting, as some, not many, versions will add to that. Well, that's a bit of a clangor, isn't it? What's going on there? We'll get to that later on in the message. Good morning. Welcome to Riverview Church Online. My name is Tom. Let's get into this. And the mega theme of this passage in chapter 9, also the preceding passages, and actually throughout the whole of Mark's account, is that the kingdom of God has come, or is present, with power. Um, And Mark wants the reader, that's you and me, to discover that Jesus is the embodiment of that present kingdom and that that kingdom is inaugurated in and operating with immense power, such power that it can raise a man from the grave. And we'll see that later in Mark's account. And so then Mark deals with the implications of this regarding Jesus, the disciples and society. So regarding Jesus, he is the personification of the kingdom of God. Mark carefully shows that Jesus sees himself as such. 
For example, in chapter two, where Jesus forgives a man his sin, but only God can forgive sin, his critics retort at him. Or in chapter eight, where Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Peter answers, you're the Christ. You are the Messiah. And the lack of any kind of rebuke, like, don't be silly, Peter, don't say such things, is evidence that Mark and Jesus fully agreed with that assertion. Don't forget that a couple of verses later, Jesus does rebuke Peter because Peter attempts to block what Messiah must suffer before we can witness that resurrection power deployed. And Mark's very diligent to include that rebuke into his account. There's no doubt in his mind or Jesus's mind that Jesus is who he claims to be. But if power is not observably present, then Jesus could either be deluded or deceitful, right? But he's neither. And so it is critically important that Mark presents evidence of this kingdom power at work in Jesus in order for Jesus to be proved to be who he thinks and says he is. Now, Mark gives plenty of evidence of this extraordinary power, and some of that will come to in our passage in a minute. But a couple of other examples include calming violent weather, walking on water, like feeding 5,000 people and later 4,000 people from just a few loaves and fish, and then healing people like a deaf man, a blind man, or a sick, stricken woman. And then regarding the disciples, the implications that Mark shows us of the present kingdom and its massive power to disciples are huge. And the one thing that is abundantly clear, everything changes. It's an all-in situation. Walking with Jesus isn't merely about making minor adjustments to a life that essentially is ours. Rather, it is a radical and total change of view, of direction, of heart and of action and seeing our lives as a life that is essentially his. Anyone, Mark records, who seeks to follow Jesus must deny themselves and take up a cross. Anyone who wants to save their life will inadvertently lose it. For what benefit would it be to gain everything that the world has on offer but sell out to the things uh, for the things that are really important? But the flip side, anyone who gives up their life for the sake of the gospel will find an abundance of life in return that outweighs, outlasts and outperforms the things of this world. And part of that is that the disciples are able to access and operate in and from that same power and authority that Jesus demonstrated. And so they go out and they proclaim with boldness and they cast out demons and they heal the sick. And then regarding society, Mark shows us that Jesus has come to turn it upside down, to change the power base, to inaugurate his kingdom in power in the very midst of human society and existence. He antagonises the rulers and the authorities and the social norms. Mark shows that he draws near to people who are deemed to be unclean and ostracised from society. He heals even when the authorities deem that to be unlawful. He can remove demonic strongholds and he even demonstrates that he has a power over one of our greatest certainties and biggest enemies, death itself, by raising a dead girl back to life. His power 
is to impact every area of our society and our existence. So now, in chapter 9, again we see this kingdom presented in two demonstrations of his power, one high up on the mountain then the other way down in the valley. You know, the reality of the difficulties in the valley of this life are distinct from the joy and the glory of the mountaintop. On the mountain, we see the radiance of Jesus's deity and majesty, a tantalising glimpse of what is really real and what is to come, but which we currently see as though through a dark glass. We, we sometimes experience something of the power of his tangible presence. You know, those prayer meetings or worship evenings where the spirit seems to be right there in our face. Those, those moments in our quiet times, perhaps, where we feel his perfect peace drop and soothe right into the core of our angsts, um, or where we sense his embrace in a moment of grief. I mean, wonderful. But the valley, that's where lives are lived, with difficulties and problems and sickness and pain, hurt, betrayal and sin. You know, no matter how wonderful and important and necessary our mountaintop times in his tangible presence are, we can't stay there. Our, our lives here and now are lived in the valleys. And we're not to be hermits who remove ourselves from the world, but workers and ambassadors who remain in it. We are meant to carry his tangible presence with us into the valley. And be encouraged to see that Jesus walks back into the valley alongside his disciples in this passage. Even when they are at a loss as to what to do, frustratingly powerless, he is right there with power. Look at verses 17 to 19. In the valley, the disciples come across a difficulty they can't seem to deal with. A, a boy inflicted with a cruel spirit that causes silence and seizures. It's a long-standing issue since he was a little child and the disciples have tried and failed to remove it. They're frustrated. They're, they're baffled, perhaps a little bit confused. Didn't Jesus already give us authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick? What is going on? But here comes the nub of the passage. Belief, or rather lack thereof, is really a failure to fully, effectively and outworkingly believe the truth that the kingdom of God has come in the person of Christ with power. <coughs> this is a big issue. Oh, faithless generation, Jesus laments, how long must I put up with this before you get it? Even the boy's exasperated father is struggling with it. If you can, he says, how many times have we approached Jesus with a request and a tentative if? That's not what he wants from us. It's not what he has for us. Disciples are not beggars on the streets of the kingdom, not orphans. Please, sir, may I have some more? Disciples are the children of the king. Everything is possible for the one who believes. Do you struggle with that? Do you find that the issues of the valley often are stubborn, obstinate, immovable and daunting? Do you find sometimes 
that let's be really honest here. We intend to be faith filled, but find that we buckle. We find it really hard to believe that things or people can or will change. I know I do. And so like the boy's father, we respond to Jesus. Lord, I have belief, but it's tiny. Help me with my massive unbelief. And you know, what you will find every time is that he has power enough and compassion enough and willingness enough to act for us. Why couldn't we just deal with this? The disciples asked. His response, this kind, only come out by prayer. There are some things that can be changed by a command or by counselling or by social action. You know, a teacher with a natural or learned authority can silence a rowdy class with just a command. A, a, a well-trained counsellor can help somebody to walk through or move forward from great hurt or anxieties. And a well-trained, uh, sorry, a well-organised outreach can feed or clothe or house many people who are in need. But there are things that are beyond us, beyond our ability to fix, figure out or facilitate. Please note that there's often a spiritual route to the difficulties that we face in the valleys, but take heart. They're not beyond a God to whom all things are possible. And so what do we need to do? What Jesus says, pray. There are many things that will not be changed except by prayer. Continued, intentional, purposeful, petitionary prayer. And prayer changes the level of our faith and our expectation. Except by prayer and, you might add, by fasting. So let's address the elephant in the room now, fasting. Most of our Bibles will have little more than a footnote saying some manuscripts add and fasting. What's going on? Why is this text, among a, a small handful of other similar examples, left out of some translations and included in others, indicated by brackets and footnotes and things like that? Well, honestly, it's a really deep rabbit hole, so we're just going like, to poke our head into it for a moment. You could write a PhD on this stuff, and people have. But really, basically, we don't have a collection of the original manuscripts of the New Testament. They've all been lost or destroyed. So what we have to translate from are extremely carefully copied versions of those originals, and sometimes even copies of those copies. Now, some translations work from the earliest kind of copies, others work from later ones, and some from a mixture for a variety of reasons. This isn't uncommon or sinister, and it's certainly not because all modern translations or versions like NIV, etc., have sold out. And that's an argument that is perpetuated, but without foundation. The reason is that translators are trying to define and be faithful to the fullest meaning of what we can understand the original author intended us to read. Now, please don't let this unsettle you. It may seem that there are conflicts between some of those Greek copies and some of our modern translations, perhaps, but actually they are relatively few. And the overall content, tone and meaning are so well preserved and corroborate so well together that it's actually evidence for the authenticity of the New Testament and of the translation that you have in your hand. 
So some of the earliest copies of Mark's gospel do not include the words and fasting. It's widely believed that they were added uh, to later copies by well-meaning scholars who wanted to highlight the importance of fasting to the early church. Really though, in Mark 9, it's a sub-issue to what Mark actually wants us to know about the kingdom and its power. But even if fasting were added later, it's not entirely out of place as we often see prayer and fasting in partnership in scripture. So let's spend a brief moment looking at that. Like most commonly, fasting was in connection with Jewish feasts and festivals such as the Day of Atonement, but also it was employed by individuals, by communities, by entire nations when circumstances required something like a little bit more robust and assertive. A lamenting Nehemiah says, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Ezra later on requiring God's protection says, I fasted and implored and then God listened. Interestingly, when we get to Jesus, he doesn't overtly instruct fasting. In fact, he and the disciples are accused of not doing it, but he did fast during the 40 days in the wilderness before commencing his ministry. We can see that in Matthew and Luke, but actually Mark doesn't mention that at all. Jesus also talks about it, linking it with prayer as an act of righteousness in Matthew 6, and even seems to assume that people do it, like when you fast, he says. But again, note that Mark doesn't mention this. And also important to note is the context there is what not to do with it. What not to do with fasting, like don't be a hypocrite, don't make it obvious, don't make a meal of it, if you could excuse the pun. Look, look at me how sad and disheveled I am because I'm doing this great sacrificial religious thing. You know, Jesus is saying, don't do that. And we'll get more into that in my next message. And then the early church in Antioch was praying and fasting when the Spirit told them to set out, set apart Paul and Barnabas for his work. And after more praying and fasting, then they sent them out. And later, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in Lystra with prayer and fasting. So it has a place, an importance, a value, not as a religious act or tradition, but as something beneficial, beautiful, purposeful, powerful, in partnership with praying. It's not meant to be a weight around our neck, but a tool within the armory of the disciples' life. So how do we apply this, church? How do we get this uh, to, into application for us today? Whether we're experiencing something of the extraordinary mountain or we're tracking through the very ordinary valley, we can know that the kingdom of God is present with power in the person of Jesus and in his church by the Holy Spirit. Pre-lockdown, we, we've known great times of God's tangible presence in our, our gathered meetings where we would bow hearts in awe-filled and joy-filled and wonder-filled praise. And, and I would hope that we also have experienced the same in our personal walks and relationships with Jesus. You know, where the clouds seem to part for a moment and we get a greater glimpse, a kind of clarity and certainty but we're never meant to build a shelter there but to be about his business is to be in the valley with the people carrying his presence there you know over the last year 
we've certainly had our time of separation from normality, separation from other disciples, from community, from society. And now we are placing our first steps back towards this valley of normality, uh, normality about to emerge from a type of separation back into the valley in which we are called to minister and shine light. And, and this is not that we've been inactive during lockdown, but we have been restricted and hampered. And we are looking at that starting to lift. You know, this kingdom is present in the church through the person of Christ within us. This power is available to us also, but it's not our power. It is his. We are containers, vessels of that power in as much as we are temples of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, to access and outwork this power, we must access him through relationship, through spending intentional time with him. If you are worried that you're not growing, if you're looking at that, just ask how much time do you seek intentionally to spend in his presence? Because I guarantee you, if you increase that, you will grow and you will go forwards. Enter prayer and fasting. This is the track by which we lead ourselves up into the mountain of his presence, that we may then carry his presence and power back into the valleys. Our, our gathered meetings should empower our scattering so that we are effective in our communities. And the incredible thing is that God wants to bring the extraordinary into the ordinary through us. But prayer and at times with it fasting is essential. If we don't seek and find Jesus on the mountaintop, we won't be able to carry him into the valley. It's not a magic formula to move God's hand, but an identification with his suffering and alignment with his heart and his will and his purposes. Your kingdom come and your will be done here as in heaven. You know, prayer and fasting is not about supercharging miraculous ability within ourselves, like a, a skill to be learned, but rather it's about placing our belief or our faith firmly in the one who holds all things and is able to do all things. Not I can do all things, full stop, but I can do all things through Christ. Prayer changes our position, our alignment, our atmosphere. We, we pray to bring our faith in line with God's purposes and reality. We fast to focus our attention away from ourselves and our hungers and lead ourselves into his presence. You know, if we want to see difference in our time, in our town, it will come not through expanding practical ministries, though valuable and required they are, but through prayer that comes from a deep place of prayerfulness and increasingly lifts our expectations and our belief to the task. How great, church, is the task ahead of us right now? How hopeless or unlikely may that seem? I mean, this town, for Jesus, to see the kingdom of God is present with power here in Bowness. Do, do we face this task filled with faith or doubt. So as I close, 
You know, we really want to continue to encourage an abundance of prayer for this town, as I know you already are committed to. But through April, we're going to really focus this into a month of prayer for the town. And we invite you, non-religiously and non-mandatorily, I think I made that word up, to fast with us on occasion within that month as well. And more details will follow, but we do not want that to be a chain around our neck, but a tool in the armory. But for now, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with all thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.